You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming. First, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rest with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko of Beth Aaron. You know, Rabbi Pupko, when we reminisce about our checkered high school experience together, uh, we talk about the time that we put on a play, and in that play, you acted as the Pope himself, Pope Co. So anytime I see the, anything about the Pope, even the 86-year-old Pope Francis, I think, I wonder what my friend Pope Co. would say about this. And I noticed today in uh, my inbox that there's a little bit of a controversy brewing about statements that the Pope, Pope Francis spoke through live stream. Let's put it in perspective, really, what happened. Just like all movements, Chabad and others, youth is very important. And Catholic Youth Day was celebrated on August 6th, and the Russian kids couldn't get there, maybe because of the war or other reasons, but they weren't able to travel to Lisbon to actually see the Pope live. So the Pope decided this past Friday to have a live stream where he, speaking from probably from... uh, someplace in Italy, to 400 kids from all over Russia who came to St. Petersburg, to this Saint, it's the Alexandria Basilica, uh, to hear his words for about an hour. And there was a lot of question and answers. But beforehand, he spoke and he gave a, a drosha. About, it was a drosha about young and old and how important it is to work with the, the older generation. And the message you might hear in any synagogue, it might be a message you might hear in, in any shaker meeting or very positive things, using references from the New Testament, albeit. But the basic idea was cooperation, that you are the future, that you are going to see things sprouting perhaps later. And then he talked about how even in the midst of war, that you have to stay steadfast and be agents of peace. And then he invoked, uh, and it's been already expunged from the official Vatican. I will read you the quote. Would you like me to read you the quote? Yes, why don't you read the quote? Pope Co., please read what Pope Francis said. Uh, Never forget your heritage. You are the descendants of great Russia, the great Russia of saints, rulers, 
the great Russia of Peter I, Catherine II, that empire, educated, great culture, and great humanity, never give up on this heritage. So in the midst of a war with Ukraine, uh, an invasion of Ukraine, let's put it uh, you know clearly, where the empire is the uh, aspiration of current Russian leadership to go ahead and praise the empire is, uh, you know, is certainly provocative. I, I think there's a given that the kids he was talking to, they, they weren't closet Ukrainian freedom fighters. No. They have drunk the Kool-Aid that Putin has spun. And he was just trying to appeal to their better sides, saying, look, okay, you want to be a proud Russia, that's fine. But Russia had greatness in it. Russia had saints in it. Uh, try to aspire to the best part of what your heritage has been, not the part that's imperialistic and that wants to take over. And yeah, but again, he, he invoked the idea of a great Russian empire. You know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's not exactly what one should be saying when Russia is invading Ukraine. But you you got to admit that this, if you look in the total context of the speech. I, I agree. If you look at the total context of the speech, it's possibly forgivable. However, if you look at the total context of the Pope's previous statements on Ukraine, I'm not sure it is forgivable. Remember what he said in May. In May, he said the following. NATO barking at Russia's doors, right, had raised alarms in the Kremlin about Western European. Western European alliances and intentions in Ukraine. I can't say, he said, I can't say if Russia's anger was provoked, but facilitated. Maybe yes. So, you know, there are things that he has said that, you know, that uh, seem overly sympathetic to the Russian position. That statement, by the way, just let me just push back for a second. That statement that NATO was pushing a little bit too hard, that was echoed by a lot of commentators here in the United States as well. Oh, but it's a question of timing. I have no problem with those who were skeptical of NATO's expansion before Russia invaded Ukraine. But in the midst of a conflict, to begin to blame the victim or, or, the, uh, is, or, or to justify the aggressor is, is not exactly, uh, you know, a strong moral position against war. Well, let me read you what an, uh, an Italian journalist who's been covering the Vatican since 1971 said about Pope Francis's views and comments on the war. He said, never in the last 60 years, with regard to a matter of such international importance, has the Holy See found itself in such a marginal position. Everyone has got a cross to bear and grind. And, you know, I, I would assume you know, that the Pope has his detractors. I think there's probably a lot of Italians that bristle over the extreme wealth and power that the Vatican yields. And, uh, and, and as we all know, Pope, the Pope has not been strong enough in his condemnation of many things, condemnation of sexual abuse in the church and other things. So, but, but I think what's going on here, this is a simple expression of a new reality, that the Catholic Church under Pope Francis, wants to shift the church from being Eurocentric to being more international in its outlook, and is therefore more than happy to align themselves, you know, with countries like, uh, you know, uh, India and Brazil, than uh, worried about being aligned with Washington or London. They're putting themselves in a position of a more of a, uh, I don't want to say third world, but a basic third world, you know, posture, 
towards the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, and, uh, and, and they're not as concerned about their ties and standing in the West, because the Western world is, you know, I wouldn't say completely united, but certainly, you know, greatly on, on the side of, of Ukraine in this, uh, sending weapons and aid. Pope Francis has even said that the West should stop sending weapons to Ukraine. I, you know, again, we, both of us uh, are, are plugged into various media outlets. And I, just like in this speech, you know, you can, you can cherry pick aspects. I'm not exactly, I'm not ready to, to throw in that, you know, we can now present a whole series of, of faux pas and ugly statements and say, here they are and here they are. We fact, fact check them. So I, again, you might be correct, but just as that CNN article that blasted him did not take in the total perspective of what his message right. was. I, I'm just wondering if, if all these quotes are accurate. I know there was one thing that really I felt was he was really vilified improperly for. There was a Russian uh, journalist who was very pro-nationalistic who died with, 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 in a car bomb explosion. And the Pope decried the, the loss of innocent lives. And he was criticized for referring to this pro-Putin journalist, a, a young woman, as a innocent. Now, again, this is her job. You might disagree with her. She holds of this of this Russia, let's say Putin, but she doesn't deserve to die in a car bomb necessarily, right? right. So the, the fact that the Pope calls the death of innocence and people say, well, how can you call her innocent? I, I think it really, the Pope is trying to operate, although again, he's not, he didn't receive the Messiah from Sinai. He is trying to operate on a higher spiritual level. Listen, he is reflexively anti-American. Let's be blunt. We know his political background in South America. He is very, uh, to put it mildly, he he has always been a great uh, skeptic about the uh, the use of American power and and Western power. He does see things, you know, through a very different lens. For instance, than Pope John Paul II, who took an uncompromising position and played a role in the collapse of communism. You know, his trips to Poland, he denounced the dictators. And uh, Francis goes ahead and praises Putin as a great man of culture. So I think he's concerned about the church's standing in Russia and therefore doesn't want to alienate the Russians. We know that according to the Catholic theology or legend, when the smoke exits out of the meeting of the of the bishops, Ruach HaKadosh has, has wafted into, you know, to the hall. And the choice was, was divine intervention almost. But the people knew what they were getting. Uh, they knew they were taking someone from Argentina. They knew they were taking somebody who was different. I mean, the, the growth areas of the church are not going to be in Europe the next generation. It's going to be in Africa and Asia. And that's what they're, they're focused on. So we might be giving him too much credit, but you, you know, he definitely has handlers. And whoever chose him, whoever is his right-hand men or the people whispering in his ear or the people really running the Catholic Church know what these messages are signaling. Right. I think to say that he is at 86 is the strong-armed lion who is trying to push the church in a certain way, I think would probably be incorrect. I don't know. I think that he's brought in his people. I think the church is clearly moving in a certain political direction, which may be corrected by the next pope. But right now, you know, the idea of a, a Eurocentric church, a, a Western-leaning church, is no, it's just, a, it's off the table. And it's interesting because, you know, of course, he, you know, his namesake is, of course, is Francis of Assisi. That is the Francis, I believe, that he is uh, trying to live up to in that spirit. 
What what is his connection to the state of Israel? How has that been? Listen, they haven't been bad. I mean, you know, there is a, there, you know, the the, equal, the even-handedness is obviously troubling to some, but the, you know, they haven't taken a big, uh, they don't have a large, a big profile on the on Israel issues. I mean, he has done the right things in terms of, let's say, the chief rabbi of Rome or meeting with uh, Jewish uh, officials who who pass through. His his anti-West leanings have not caused him to speak out and condemn things in Eretz Yisrael or anything like that. So I, I, I don't recall any. I mean, maybe I, I, I don't recall offhand, but anything seriously damaging, no. We speak about the Pope and how much control he has over a complex system and how much we should blame him for things that are going on. I find it an interesting parallel how Ron DeSantis is being blamed for the terrible murder in the dollar store in Jacksonville of, of the black patrons there uh, by a white uh, supremacist. Uh, people have said, well, we told you that Florida was a dangerous place for blacks to visit. I think that was issued back in April. So here we have this Meshuggah coming in and killing blacks has now shown that they wanted to blame DeSantis for stirring this type of anti-black fervor. I mean, don't you find that also inane and, and completely uh, non-contextual? Listen, you know, you, nobody blamed the governor of New York when the uh, Buffalo supermarket shooting took place. I, 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 you know, you can say a lot of, you know, negative things about DeSantis. I don't believe he has given any aid and sucker to racists. It's ridiculous. Either the curriculum that people were upset about it was, you know, uh, the, when, when liberals cr- criticized it, it was, uh, they did not present it honestly. The curriculum was still very strongly anti-slavery. It just didn't buy into critical race theory. Uh, the curriculum was very open about, uh, uh, the crime of slavery, the evils of slavery. I mean, everything about DeSantis on education was distorted by the left. I mean, to go ahead and pass a rule that shouldn't need a rule, that kids in grade three and third grade shouldn't have to hear about, you know, transsexuals or, 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 or you know, or, or homosexuality. It's not a crazy thing to say. I mean, you know, we, people send their kids to school to learn how to read and do math. You know, they can leave, you know, social commentary to the dinner table. And, and all he did was ban those conversations. I think either third grade or fourth grade and under. I mean, that's not, that is not don't say gay. That's, you know, focus on what you're supposed to teach in school and move on. You know, I, I almost think that we have become so immune to these shootings and to the aspect just of, of the blood on the sidewalk that when the shooting occurs, almost immediately we have the packaging of it as, oh, you see what this shooting means? It's another sign of gun control out of uh, no well, gun listen, This whole thing with gun control, you know, there are so many laws on the books that are not being uh, fully pursued or implemented even that has allowed violence to explode. I mean, typical gun violations in cities like Chicago and New York are barely prosecuted. They have laws in the books that could go after this whole thing, but they don't use them. And people like the, the murderer in Jacksonville represent in the overall statistics a vanishingly small percent of, uh, of murders. 99% of the murders in America are not people who write racist manifestos. Most murders in America are, 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 are career criminals killing other career criminals. A Milwaukee study, for example, found that 97% of the suspects 
in one year's non-fatal shootings, had at least one prior arrest, along with 86% of the victims. And New York City once survey found that 80% of all murderers and a comparable share of murder victims had prior criminal histories. The majority of violent crime in the U.S. is the work of a small number of dedicated career criminals. And the fact that they have access to guns, when there are laws on the books that should preclude that possibility, and they aren't being enforced, when you get picked up carrying an illegal firearm in Chicago, you do not end up in prison, although you should. And they're not, they're not prosecuting gun crimes. And they are, the media is ignoring uh, the deaths of those innocents who are, yeah, you talked about the victims who might have criminal records, but even the innocents who get blasted through, you know, through the fire that's going on between but, uh, the, listen, the guy in Jacksonville. Okay, let's talk about the guy in Jacksonville. Let's talk about what happened to him. There's something in Florida called the Baker Act. The Baker Act is a law which says that if you've been in a mental institution, you can't get a gun. Now, that's if you've been involuntarily put in a psychiatric facility. According to the law, what happens is it begins with a 72-hour of involuntary custody, after which, based on psychiatric evaluation, you can be held for as long as six months for involuntary treatment, which goes only after a court hearing. The Baker Act proceedings can be initiated by a judge, mental health professionals, or law enforcement. This fellow was picked up under the Baker Act, was put into an an, uh, involuntary custody for 72 hours. After those 72 hours, he was released, right? And therefore, he didn't fall under the uh, the prohibitions, right, as part, that are part of the Baker Act that would preclude this fellow from buying a handgun. Because after 72 hours, he was released. As he had he been kept, it would have been illegal for him to acquire a firearm. So in other words, there are laws in the books, but they're very hard to enforce. We, we prize individual freedom. We don't like incarcerating people in psychiatric institutions against their will. But these people, where was the Parkland shooter, right? That kid... There weren't just red flags. There were fireworks about this guy. He was also, the Parkland guy was also subject of a uh, invol- of, of a Baker Act process, right? But this guy had been the focus of dozens of police calls, had threatened to shoot up the school. One terrified teacher called him a school shooter in the making. And, 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 and again, there were adequate tools to uh, have him either uh, incarcerated in a psychiatric institution or at the very least, keep him from buying firearms legally, which he ended up doing. He ended up buying firearms legally, although this guy was a walking red flag. So there are laws on the books and procedures on the books which can be used to stop things like Jacksonville and Parkland that aren't being used. I guess there seems to be a complete lack of activism towards upgrading how we deal with the the mentally ill how we deal with making gun laws work, and instead using these terrible incidents as rationale for waving some sort of political flag and and then taking the sharp end of that flag and sticking it into the heart of of your opponent. And this is really, you know, we talk about dumb and nogu, as the Pesach says, the blood and the blood just keep on touching each other. The blood of the victim now becomes really the lifeblood of your political enemy that you use to sort of like attack uh, together. And, and I, you know, the sense of mourning doesn't really occur. 
Oh, listen, I mean, you have to listen. That Pittsburgh sent Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. People blame Trump right away. Uh, when in fact, you know, when crazed killers on the left perpetrate these acts, like the uh, when they when that fellow shot up the congressional baseball game, right in Washington, right a Republican baseball game. You know, how many? I mean, did you hear people blaming uh, the Democrats? No, but there's a, a kind of one sidedness all of this that blames anything that happens in America of a racist nature on Republicans, and it's it's insane. It's it's silly. It's just silly. I would also add to that, not just the Steve Scalise, who I think this week announced that he's uh, battling cancer, yes. was one of the victims of that shooting, but also, of course, the Nashville, terrible Nashville shooting, where someone entered into the Christian school and, uh, you know, a, a, a trans woman started killing Christian kids, right. because, clearly because of what the Bible uh, had done in terms of creating a hateful environment uh, for people. You know, as we approach the end of the summer and, uh, you know, we look forward to the football season, which actually does not start, I think, this year until next week. This week, you know, we have off. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, two, two phenomena. We talked about Florida a minute ago. You know, the hurricane season, you know, builds up always towards the end of August, you know, as we get towards El. I think, you know, it, it's, it's it, in many ways, you know, without getting too rabbinic and, and drushy here, it, it always, you know, you start thinking about that power of, of that God can unleash, uh, all the, you know, and it's, it's interesting how almost every couple of years as we approach Rosh Hashanah, you get, there's some sort of hurricane brewing and who knows when it's going to hit land, when it's going to affect some sort of community, whether it's going to be in Florida or New York or in California recently with uh, Hurricane Hillary. I, I think so many times we, we find ourselves davening for communities. We, we, we sort of get a sense here. I think, you know, God, it, it's terrible, the, the, uh, the destructive power of these hurricanes. I, don't, I have no problem people uh, understanding the wrath of nature as a wake-up call to understand the awesome power of the forces in the world and our humbled position in that, in that, in that framework. Yes. I have no problem with people thinking that. Let's talk about one last thing, which is another thing which always comes out around Yemei El, Yemei Adin is the American holiday for one last summer fling called Labor Day. Now, do you in Canada have anything similar to that? Yeah, we have Labor Day. Sure. We have Labor Day Monday. Yeah. Right. Now, of course, now, again, I didn't, we didn't do a Google search about the history of Labor Day, but you know, why there needs to be some sort of, you know, a holiday celebrating people going back to work or labor. I don't know, what I noticed this summer in this post-COVID world we're living in, people are barely working Fridays and Mondays anyway. You know, if you get days at work out of somebody, it's it's a lot now these days. Yeah, well, this is really the, you know, the, I think the Wall Street Journal had an interesting article about it in the weekend edition about the real struggle about, and from various uh, academic institutions about what is the best model, I think they came out with a uh, with a very interesting uh, hair that for workers who have been on the job for a while who sort of know what they're doing, working from home they're actually more productive. But uh -huh. workers who are just initially getting their feet wet to understand what the corporate identity and what the company needs, they need to actually be connected with people. In my profession, I cannot work from home. No. Do you see this day off as somehow a, a positive? I try to 
you know, you, you rejected it in your usual way of saying, oh, come on, hurricanes. Yeah, I don't care about them. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I think it actually does in a way remind us. Do you think having this day off is also good in terms of like sort of like preparing and thinking? I, I think, listen, people don't want summer to end. You know, we wanted to keep going. I mean, in the old days, Labor Day meant something more. I mean, it was like really the end of summer. School always started the day after Labor Day. Now that's all changed. So many schools have started already. You know, it's interesting, especially schools in Florida and warmer climates, they've started uh, in mid-August now. Right. Uh, and the reason is, is because of the heat in June. Right. They want to end earlier. Yeah. The electrical costs of keeping the, the school running yeah. in intense heat, in, in a way, it makes a lot of sense, um, especially in our Jewish schools, where schools that start after Labor Day are it's not very close to Yontif already. Yeah. Very close to Yontif. And, you know, starting earlier gives at least... Yeah, it gives some chance to talk about Yontif in the lower grades for sure, yeah. Enjoy that day off, everybody. We'll catch you next week. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 